Before we get going, here's a little tease. Around this time of year, some of you in the Northeast begin to see flowers popping up all around you in the woods and fields. But no one planted them. So Eliza wants to know... Why do flowers grow wild? Keep listening after the episode to learn more. But Why is supported by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings may vary. This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids from Vermont Public Radio. I'm Jane Lindholm. On this podcast, we honor the diversity of childhood experience and celebrate the wonder you all bring to the world around you. In other words, you guys are all awesome and your questions are even awesomer. Every episode, we take one or two or 12 of your questions and we find some neat people to help answer them. Here in Vermont, and all over the Northern Hemisphere right now, it's summer. For many of us, that means warmer weather, long days, and fun outside. In today's episode, we're going to be answering questions about creatures you might find outside in the summertime, and we'll scratch a few bug bites and some poison ivy. So put on your sunscreen, we're going to talk about that too, grab your bug net, and come on an outdoor adventure with us. Speaking of sunscreen, I'm sure many of you want to run the other direction or look down when your parent is trying to put sunblock on your nose. It's so annoying. Why are they doing this to you? My name is Samara. I am eight years old and from Johnson, Vermont. My question is, why do I have to wear sunscreen? My name is Yessie and I'm four years old and I live in Minnesota. I want to know why we don't have to wear sunscreen in the house. The sun's light gives us lots of things we need to grow and thrive. But it can also be damaging. Certain kinds of light from the sun, ultraviolet light it's called, can damage your skin when you get too much of it. If you've ever gotten a sunburn, you know how that feels. Tight and hot and really painful. And sometimes your skin even peels off where you got the burn. Like any kind of burn, that's not good for your skin. Even a tan is bad for your skin. When you get older, it can make your skin wrinkly and aged if you've gotten too many sunburns. More importantly, doctors think there's a link between lots of sun damage over time and skin cancer. Sunscreen, or sunblock, has chemicals or minerals in it to help filter out or block the damaging ultraviolet light from the sun. You should be wearing a sunblock with an SPF, sun protection factor of at least 15 or 30, and you should slather it on every two hours or after you've gone for a swim and then toweled off. Everyone can get sun damage. People with darker skin have more melanin, which offers a little bit of sun protection, but it's still important to put sunscreen on whether your skin is light or dark or anywhere in between to make sure you're protecting yourself. 
You don't have to wear sunscreen indoors because your house is kind of acting like sunblock. It's actually blocking that ultraviolet light. Though, be careful, you can get a sunburn through a sunny window, especially in a car. And if you really hate sunscreen, you can also wear a hat with a wide brim to help protect your face and neck, and long-sleeved shirts and pants to keep the sun off your skin and limit where you need to put that sunscreen. But, you know, sunscreen is a small burden to bear for being able to play outside in the sun all day long. I'm Patrick, and I'm four, and I live in eastern New Hampshire, and I want to know how a firefly glows. Writer and field biologist Brian Pfeiffer loves watching fireflies, so he took a crack at Thatcher's question about how fireflies glow. Fireflies glow not because they're plugged into anything, but they generate their own glow with a chemical reaction in their body. In the rear end of the firefly, there are some chemicals that the firefly can mix, and when they mix, they produce light. And the glow of a firefly actually is a signal to other fireflies. The males flash for females, and it's all part of reproduction and making more fireflies. The males fly around, and they flash for the females, and they flash in a recognizable pattern, and the females will respond with a flash of their own. When we see fireflies flying across our yard at night, they're flashing for the females. And the females are often down in the grass or down in the shrubs. And she will see him, and she'll respond with a flash. And he'll say, wow, there's a lady over there. I'm going to come in and meet her. Hello, my name is Heidi. I'm six years old. I live in Leonardville, Kansas. And my question is, can fireflies control their blinking? Fireflies do control their blinking because it's very important in their life. We communicate by talking to each other. Fireflies communicate with each other through blinking. They recognize each other through their blinkings. And there are many, many different kinds of fireflies, different species of fireflies, and many of them have their own blinking patterns. So they speak with four flashes and then a pause, and then four flashes, and then a pause. That might be one kind of firefly. Then there's another firefly that makes a J flash. So it'll be hanging in the hot summer air, and it'll flash, and it'll draw a J as it's flashing with its bottom. And you can actually see the J kind of hanging there for just a little bit as it flashes. So when it flashes its pattern, it makes a J. Other fireflies will fly horizontally and then blink as they fly. But the fire, let's say I'm one kind of firefly. I can't communicate with the other kind by deciding, well, this time I'm going to make a J. Or I can't say, hey, I'm a unique firefly and I'm going to go flash, 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 flash. And then tomorrow I'm going to go flash, flash. Generally, they have their fixed flashes. Now, they flash one kind of flash. The flashing does depend on how hot it is, if it's really humid. Those kinds of things also will change the flashing pattern a bit. But pretty much they have their own distinctive flashing pattern. Per each species. Per species, not per individual. Right, exactly. There is, however, a trick that sometimes the females play. Sometimes the female fireflies will flash as an imitation 
They'll do a fake flash because they see a male out there and they would recognize it. And a female might flash to bring him in, but she's playing a trick on him. She's not a female of his species. She's not one of his kind. She's a different species. And when he comes in, thinking he's going to meet a female, she actually will kill him and eat him. Oh, how cruel. Do you live in a place where there are fireflies? There are about 2,000 different species of fireflies, and they live all over the world. In the United States, they mostly live east of Kansas. So if you divided the U.S. down the middle, they'd mostly be on the right-hand side. They love moisture, so even in fairly dry places, you'll find them hanging around in tall grass near marshes or other kind of soggy spots. If you do live near fireflies or visit a place where they live, you can try to see if you can attract them to you by mimicking a firefly. To mimic means to imitate or to pretend to be, so you have to kind of pretend to be a firefly. You can use a flashlight and stand at the edge of a field where the fireflies are and then flash your light on and off. But Brian says it's a little tricky if you want to catch the firefly's attention. Sometimes if you're good and you know how the females flash, if you see the males flashing and you know the female's response, you can hold like a little pen light in the grass and flash like that female. And sometimes the male will come in to your flash. But it's tricky. It takes a bit of practice and you have to really know, well, what is the female's flash? What's her signature? Brian says in a lot of places, fireflies have disappeared because there's not enough open grassland for them to congregate or gather. Too many people mowing their lawns means less space for the fireflies. Coming up, we'll learn about owls and moths. But first, a message for the adults who are listening. Support for our program comes from Oak Meadow, providing secular, student-centered homeschooling curriculum and a teacher-supported distance learning school for K-12. Oak Meadow has encouraged kids to follow their curiosity and uncover the answers to But Why for 45 years. To learn more, visit oakmeadow.com. This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids. I'm Jane Lindholm. You know, if you're already outside in the evening, you might get lucky and hear something like this. That's a barred owl. B-A-R-R-E-D. Barred. In our very first episode, we got to hear some amazing barred owl sounds from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where this one came from. So if you haven't checked out that episode, go find it, and you can hear barred owls talking to their babies, having kind of a barred owl party. Since that episode, we've gotten a few owl questions. My name is Matthew, and I live in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm six years old, and my question is, how are owls nocturnal? I'm Kent McFarland, a biologist at the Vermont Center for Eco Studies. Owls are nocturnal because there's a, a, a time of night when there's very few other birds around, so they can feed on things that the other birds aren't feeding on, and mostly those are mice. And because the mice are nocturnal, the owls become nocturnal to find the mice and other small mammals. It could be you know, a ver- variety of different woodland mice. And owls have amazing adaptations to be able to 
hang out at nighttime and be awake when we're not. And one of them is eyesight, for example. They have really big eyes on the front of their faces that allow a gathering of a lot of light. So when there's just a little bit of moonlight maybe or a little bit of street light even, they can gather a lot of that light and see things better. The other thing they have is really excellent hearing. And the coolest thing about owls is, is their ears – one side, one ear is up higher and one ear is down lower on the other side. And that allows them to hear things just slightly differently on each side. So if they hear a mouse squeaking or making a noise in the understory of the forest and they're on a branch, they might turn their head towards the sound and the sound will be funneled into one side of their head more quickly than the other side of their head. And their brain is so fast, it allows them to sort of triangulate allows them to figure out the angle of the sound and then allows them to see literally with their mind where the sound came from and then allows them to swoop down and grab that mouse without ever even seeing it. So they're seeing with sound. That's the greatest adaptation I think they have. The second thing is, is, well, if you're going to swoop down on a mouse, you have to be quick, but you also have to be quiet. And so they have a lot of owls have these amazing wings where the feathers on the ends of their wings are fringed. They have little, almost like hairs on the end of their wings. They're sort of, well, they're a fringe for lack of a better word. They're sort of soft and cozy at the end. And so when they beat their wings through the air, instead of making a loud whoosh, 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 like you might hear an eagle make, it's really quiet. It's just and bang, they're onto the mouse. So the mouse never even hears them coming. So these are some just great adaptations that allow them to take advantage of darkness and to feed on things, small mammals like mice. Hi, my name is Jara. I'm 10 years old and I live in Heinsberg. My question is, how do owls swivel their heads all the way around? So first, why do owls have to swivel their heads at all? And one of the reasons is, is that their eyes are sort of towards the front of their head, just like us. Some birds, if you look at them, like, say, an eagle, their eyes are sort of to the sides of their head. But on owls, if you notice, they more have a, a, a face like ours. Their eyes are towards the front of their face. It gives them what's called binocular vision, really acute vision to see small things like rodents to eat. But there's a really big difference between how owls' eyes move and how our eyes move. Right now, sit up straight, look straight ahead. Now, without moving your neck, move your eyes left and right. Are you doing it? You have a wide range of vision just by turning your eyes without even moving your head. You can see off to the side, maybe see your sibling. You can turn to the other side, see what's happening over there. And your head is still facing forward. Well, owls can't do that. Owls can't pivot their eyeballs at all. Their eyeballs are fixed into their skull. They can't move them. And so... In order to compensate for that, they have to turn their heads to see things. So if they hear something with their great hearing off to the right, boom, they're going to pivot their head real quickly and get that binocular vision right on what they're hearing and see if they can see it. So that's why their heads can actually pivot quickly and quietly is because they can't pivot their eyeballs at all. One thing you might think about, though, is, is that sometimes we see maybe in cartoons or on shows that an owl might turn its head the whole way around, 360 degrees. It'll start in the front and spin its head the whole way around. Well, it's funny to think that they might be able to do that. They can't really do that. But they can turn their heads really far, much farther than ours. Like if you think about yourself, if you turn your head to the right, they could pivot their head well past their shoulder, almost to the 
back to almost to the whole way to the back of their back. And then they have to turn it back around again. They can do it to the left side. I wish I could turn my head that far around. My name is Pippa, and I live in West Oregon, and I'm five. And my question is, how do um, different owls make different sounds? Thank you. Well, owls make a couple of different sounds. You know, we often think of owls as hooting, and many of them do hoot. But they also, there's some kinds of owls, like the northern sawwhite owl, which is a tiny little owl that lives here in Vermont and other places in the Northeast. And it actually makes little whistle noises. And it actually makes this crazy noise that sounds like sharpening of an old-fashioned saw that people used to use to cut lumber. So it doesn't hoot. It sort of whistles and makes these wild noises at night. And even barred owls, which hoot, which do the sort of, who cooks for you, who cooks for you all, it sounds like that when they do it. They actually, when they have young in the nest, and when they come out of the nest, the young make all kinds of crazy monkey noises and and just a variety of strange noises that might, if you're walking in the woods at night, might scare you a little bit if you didn't know it was just a beautiful owl making the noise. And then another thing they like to do if you get really close to them and they're a little bit upset is they snap their bills. And I've had barred owls do this to me when I've gotten too close to them when they might be roosting in a tree in the daytime. If I happen to see one and I walk up underneath the tree and the owl looks down at me and it's about to fly and it's a little mad at me for getting too close, it takes its sharp bills and just snaps it together. Kind of like a warning, like, I see you and I'm not happy with you. And it's, it's just a warning to get out of my territory or I'm going to have to fly. And I don't think he wants to fly, really. So there's different sounds that owls can make. It's not all just hoo-hoo. It's all kinds of whistles and snaps and, and great noises at night. Do you like being outside at night? I do, even though sometimes I get a little scared when I hear noises I don't recognize. That's why I think it's so cool to hear from people like Kent McFarland and Brian Pfeiffer, because they know a lot of things and they can tell us exactly what those sounds are. And when you know what's out there making noise, it helps you form a picture in your head of what's happening around you, even if you can't see it. And that can help you be less afraid. And, you know, sometimes when you can't see, it forces you to be a better listener and maybe even a better smeller. And you start to understand all of the things that are happening around you that you don't even pay attention to in the daytime or when you can see them. Of course, if you don't want it to be dark, you turn on a light. And what happens then? Well, little winged creatures start flying right towards your light. I'm Vaughn. I'm five years old. I live in Parkville, Maryland. I was wondering why moths are so attracted to light. No one actually really knows why they're attracted to light. There's a lot of ideas out there, and I always ask other people that love moths, other entomologists, people that study insects, and they always give me a different answer. But generally, there's two answers. One of them is they think that moths might use things like the moon to navigate at night. And so if you imagine at nighttime, they're, they're sensing where the moon is, and it allows them to sort of figure out which way to fly. So your porch light might look like the moon and confuse them. But Kent says he's never really liked that hypothesis, that idea. He prefers a different scientific theory. The other idea is, is that they're attracted to lights because they see different kinds of light than we do. So moths have special eyes, a lot of them, and they can see a light spectrum that we can't even see, ultraviolet light, colors of light that we in the spectrum of the sun that we can't even imagine in our brains. They can see it. And so the idea is that some of our lights, things that run on things like mercury vapor lights, these special lights or black lights, 
these kind of lights give off an eerie glow to moths that maybe mesmerize them and may actually blind them. So they're kind of attracted to them because they can see it. It's this bright object. And when they get near it, it might actually be so strong that it blinds them and they get confused. And you've seen these moths do this. They just circle and circle and circle the light. And then they'll land on something like they're exhausted. And it might be that they're actually just blinded. They literally can't do anything but circle around and try to get out of the light, and they just can't seem to. And they'll land on something, I mean, almost in frustration, let's say, you know, like, gosh. And then you turn the light off, and slowly they all fade away and go back to their business. So I like that idea, that it's it's a spectrum of light that they can see that we can't see, and it just really blinds them and confuses them and brings them in. Which also tells me that, you know, I want to make sure that I turn my lights on so I can watch moths for a little bit. But I also like to turn them off, too, so they all disappear and can go about their their daily routine. Because there is some concern that um, there are some lights, especially in our cities, that actually confuse moths so much and they're on so much that it's detrimental to their health. and, And we don't have as many moths in those places because of artificial lighting. You know, we thought you might like to learn a little bit more about moths. So right now, I'm going to play you an excerpt or a a bit from another podcast that we make here at Vermont Public Radio. It's called Outdoor Radio, and it's all about the natural world around us. It's hosted by Kent McFarland, who you've been hearing from, and another biologist at the Vermont Center for Eco Studies named Sarah Zahendra. In a recent episode, Sarah and Kent collected moths in a way that you can do in your own home. So here's Kent and Sarah and Outdoor Radio. I know we've gone to some wild places before, and tonight where it's not so wild, we're going to look at moths in my backyard. And you can actually find tens, maybe hundreds of different species in your own backyard. Yeah, it's amazing. Everyone just thinks of moths as being these little brown things that flutter around at night. When you really stop to look at them, you find out that there are all kinds of colors out there. There's reds, there's pinks, there's yellows, there's gold. And it's even not just moths. Things like giant water bugs, all sorts of different lace wings, some really beautiful, fascinating insects just on a summer night with family and friends. And that's what we have tonight. In my backyard, we've got a sheet hanging up. I've got a black light, and I've got what's called a mercury vapor light. And we've got really the most important part, and that is a moth expert with us. We do. I invited Joanne Russo up, who is an expert at moths, and you're kind of addicted to moths now. I am. She also puts pictures of moths that she sees in her backyard, and then she also helps people identify moths that they take photographs of as well. Yeah. And let's hope we find something more than just June bugs right. on the sheet, because oh, now I'm there's sure one attached to Kent's leg. So you said earlier you got really excited back in, what, 2007 yeah, or so? Yeah, it was about 2007, and looking for something to do in the summer, something I didn't really have to travel for. Butterflies didn't do it, dragonflies didn't do it, and I started just looking at moths that were coming to my lights. I took a picture, I blew it up on the computer, and I was amazed at the colors and just the variety that was coming to my house with just my porch light. And I didn't have to go anywhere. But with moss, they come to you. Leave a light on. So if you really want to get more involved with moss, then you can get like a black light or a mercury vapor light. You can do moth bait, which is just kind of beer, maple syrup, or 
brown sugar, bananas, fruit like that. It ferments. You can paint it on the barks of trees. Some moss will be attracted to this, and a lot of the like katakala moths, which are these just brilliantly colored underwing moths that when they first come out and you see them, they kind of blend in with the bark of a tree. Their patterns are just subtle and dark. And then if their predator approaches them, they open up and they show this beautiful orange or pink striped underwing that just makes that predator say, okay, I'm not, yeah. I'm not touching you. The predator will have that image in its mind of what this moth looked like, but then the moth will light back on a bark of a tree and the wings will fold back up and now it looks totally different. It's disappeared. It's disappeared. Camouflage. It's camouflaged. So that's what happens. You start yeah. looking at these things and you get addicted, You do. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's easy to do. Well, then let's start looking at these things. So what I have set up back here is one sheet in my backyard with a mercury vapor light on it. And it's just a fancy light that I bought at a pet store. Up on my deck, I've got another sheet where I have a black light at. It's a UV light. And so all these lights attract the moths and other insects. And we already have... Joanne, you're bent down on a moth right this there right now. Beautiful. Right. We have this beautiful little green moth. It's one of the emeralds, and there's oh, a lot man. of them. And they have, uh, they're just a really pretty, almost like celery green color. And when they spread open their wings, when they're at rest, they have very fine white lines on them. There's a, there's a lot of them in, in Vermont. As you guys are looking at that one, I'm looking over your heads, and there's literally moths coming in out of the woods just <laughs> buzzing around our heads. That's great. Um, Wait, so how many species now of moths that we know of are in Vermont? We are still figuring that out, but we're somewhere around 2,500 species of moths in Vermont alone. And so this is separated into two distinct groups that are called the micro-moths and the macro-moths, right? right? Which is just what it sounds like. Teeny, <laughs> tiny, really intricate, beautiful, delicate little moths. But you can also really just stick with the macro-moths. Obviously, those are larger moths and a little bit easier to identify. And there's a lot of great books They'll help you identify those moths. There's also a lot of sources online. There's bugguide.net. There's the Moth Photographers Group that has a lot of moths. And Facebook has a lot of moth groups. So a lot of people post a picture of a moth that they found, where they found it. And some expert will come in and say, this is what it is. And so it's, it's, it's pretty easy. This is the perfect time, really, to be looking for moths because... A lot of them are mating right. right now, especially those macro moths that everybody loves to see, like the luna moth. Right. Yeah, let's check the bait. All right, let's go find it. I put this bait out in the sun all day, and then I just take a paintbrush, and I paint it onto the trunk of the tree. And it's little chunks of banana you see on there, and then some molasses. And Why do we put bait out in the first place? Like, what's the point of that if we've already got these lights out? Well, there are species that won't come to lights, but they will come to bait. So it's a, it's just a good way to, to see different species of moths. Is there anything to be afraid of? No, adult moths are very docile, especially when they're resting at a sheet. You can pick them up. A lot of times they'll just almost stick to your fingers. Their feet almost have these little um, suction cuppy things that, you know, you've got it on your finger and you're looking at it and then it's like, all right, and, and they're just... Like, okay, I'm just going to stay on your finger for a while. <laughs> they don't want to leave. Yeah. So you almost have to push them off, but they're not going to bite you. One of the um, great things about this, I think, is it's something that an entire family can do together right. on a weekend evening, and it's a great way to get kids involved in experiencing nature, and there's no danger involved whatsoever. Like you said, they're not going to sting. They don't bite. Um, so it really is a good way to introduce people to... Yeah all the species in their backyard. But one of the things we want to remember about, not only are there so many species, 
in Vermont and elsewhere. But really, moths are sort of the powerhouse for everything else out in the woods that we hear. They're the protein for all those songbirds out there singing. They're feeding all their chicks moth larvae um, that they're collecting. And, and if it wasn't for this massive, bountiful crop of moths every year, the birds would do very poorly. Bats would do very poorly. I was going to say, poorly. don't forget about the bats, um, right? And they're also pollinators. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us tonight and, and talking about moths. You're welcome. Anytime. I love it. I'm Kent McFarland. And I'm Sarah Zahendra. Thanks for listening to Outdoor Radio. Well, we didn't find a luna moth. I've got this emerald back here in the backside of it. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, here's a new one. Who's a different one? Oh, there's a couple oh. of different ones. Look at this one, you guys. Oh, whoa, whoa. Look at this one. I just got a glimpse oh, of it. It's here. gold. It's gold, gold, gold. If you like that, you can check out other episodes and subscribe to Outdoor Radio. Now, before we end this episode, I want to answer a few questions about the less pleasant parts of being outside in the summertime that you've sent us. My name is Rowan, and I'm four, and I'm from Juneau, Alaska. My question is that, why do bug bites itch? Well, Rowan, if you have ever looked closely at a mosquito while it's biting you, you might have noticed that the mosquito has a long, skinny mouth, or proboscis, that it actually sticks through your skin like a needle or a straw so it can suck up your blood. Yowza! When they do that, mosquitoes inject a little bit of their spit or saliva into your skin. Their saliva has chemicals in it, and your body says, Wait a minute, this isn't right. Where did this come from? And then your body sends out other chemicals called histamines. The histamines are what create that red bump that you get where the bug bit you, and they actually cause the itching. It's uncomfortable and annoying, but it's actually your body trying to defend and repair itself. So that's mainly why mosquito bites and other bug bites itch. Some bugs also have other kinds of chemicals that make you itch, and some of them even have histamines in their own saliva. But basically, it's the bite from the bug, sometimes the way their little teeth work that can cause that little spot to itch or burn, and it's the histamines in your own skin helping your body repair itself and defend itself against that mean bug. Hi. My name is Macy. I'm seven years old, and I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts. My question is, why are some caterpillars poisonous? Macy, have you listened to our episode about butterflies yet? You might find that one super interesting. In it, we learned how butterflies have come up with all kinds of ways to protect themselves from predators, animals that want to eat them. So the butterflies might look camouflaged so that nobody can see them, or just the opposite. They might have really bright colors, and those colors signal to a predator, don't even think about eating me. I am poisonous. Well, it's the same thing for caterpillars. Some caterpillars are poisonous when an animal tries to eat them. Their insides are poisonous, so the animals will learn to avoid them. And some caterpillars have hollow hairs with poisonous chemicals in them that will make your skin sting if you touch them. This is all ways that the caterpillar has to try to stay alive and keep you or another animal away. My name is Sophie. Um, I'm nine years old, and I live in Washington, D.C., and my question is, why does poison ivy itch us? Poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, these are all different plants that you might encounter in the woods depending on where you live. These plants have an oil called urushiol that causes a rash when it gets on your skin. 
Luckily, though, the rash might not develop for a couple of days after you've touched a plant. So if you've accidentally walked through poison ivy and you realize it, washing yourself off with soap can help stop the rash from appearing or at least prevent you from having such a bad rash. There are other plants that can give you a reaction, too, and some of them are reactive to sunlight. They can get worse in the sun. So you should get an adult to help you recognize these plants so you can keep yourself safe. Now, speaking of things that you should learn about to stay safe, here's another one. I am Melbourne. I am seven years old. I live in England. My question is, why are some berries poisonous and some not? Berries are actually designed to be eaten. They're the seeds of the plant. But it wouldn't be very helpful to have all the seeds drop right on top of one another, right below that original plant. The seedlings would crowd one another out, and they'd be competing for light and water and soil. So plants have developed remarkable ways to spread their seeds. Some seeds are really light, and they have kind of like a parachute or almost a balloon that catches the wind. If you've ever blown on a dandelion that's gone to seed, all those puffy parts just float away and the little seed is on the bottom that floats along with it. Lots of berries were designed to be eaten by animals who then walk or fly away. Later on, the animal will poop out the seeds and that's where those new plants will grow. As plants have evolved, sometimes they have substances in them that are poisonous to humans, but not to other animals, like birds. One theory is that birds are better at dispersing or spreading seeds because they can fly so far and so fast. So the plants adapted ways to make the berries less appealing to certain animals, like humans, while still being a good snack for the local birds. All of you should know that some berries and plants can be really dangerous. So you should always talk to an adult before you eat something wild and unfamiliar. And there are plenty of books you can get that will help you identify a berry or a plant or a mushroom and find out what ones look similar but are poisonous so you know what you can and can't eat. That's it for today's episode. I hope you're getting outside and having a lot of fun in the summertime. Or if you're living in a place where it's winter, you can tell us what you're doing too. And I hope you're having a good time as it gets cool and dark. Tell us some of the things that you love to do in the summertime. Send a note to questions at butwhykids.org. That's also the email address that you can use to send us questions about anything you might be wondering. We want to know about history, friendship, families, emotions, science, anything that you're wondering. We would love to know about it. Have an adult record you asking your question on a smartphone. You can use a memo function. Make sure you tell us your first name, your town, and how old you are, and we'll try to get you an answer. But Why is produced by Melody Baudet and me, Jane Lindholm, at Vermont Public Radio. Our theme music is by Luke Reynolds. Thanks to Kent McFarland and Chris Albertine for some great summer sounds, and Carita Bergman for a saw-wet owl sawing. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, stay curious.
Remember our question from before the podcast started about how wildflowers grow? This time of year, some flowers bloom in the woods and only live for a short, short time. For our series Northeast Nature, I went for a walk in the woods with naturalist Jack Markoski to learn more about spring flowers. What I love the most about spring ephemerals is that they have such this narrow window of time that they are photosynthesizing and, and appearing to our eyes, right? And so they're coming up from the ground after the ground thaws, so really short period, all the way to when the leaves come out in the canopy. And that can change in the year and really make it a magical time to find ephemerals. Ephemerals are a type of flower that's short-lived. That's what ephemeral means. Maybe you can find some on a walk in the woods where you live. If you want to get But Why for your classroom or home study, sign up for But Why Adventures Northeast Nature. In this monthly series, we learn more about what's happening outside, and we have curriculum and activity guides for all students. It's free, and you can find out more at butwhykids.org nature. From PR.